Welcome to Oh God, What Now? Official sponsors of the April 2021 Super League. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. This week we'll be asking whether anyone can get tax law fixed for them in a pandemic or whether you need to be a Brexiteer with a line in super powerful vacuum cleaners and a direct line to Boris Johnson's mobile. And while I don't know a lot about football, luckily I know some people who do. So we'll be talking to them about the European not so super league and its tragic half life. But first, let's welcome Ian Dunt, editor at large of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello. Uh, Boris Johnson cancelled a visit to India this week and put the country on the red list. Have they acted in time to stop the new variant? No, no, they have not. I've been sort of concerned recently. I've been looking at the story and just feeling like I, I've noticed that I, I have started just thinking about it exclusively in terms of the UK. And in fact, that isn't morally like the right place to start. The morally the right place to start is it, what's happening in India is kind of almost incomprehensible at the moment. Like the last few days, they've had a quarter of a million new cases um, a day. We know, or at least it seems extremely likely that the death rates that they're talking about are not correct. They're not really giving us decent numbers on the death rate. They're likely to be much, much, much higher than the government has suggested. Uh, the, the spike is vertical and the healthcare system in many areas seems to be on the verge of collapse. And in some places, the crematoriums are basically just working day and night. It is unbelievably fucking horrific. Um, it is also like this kind of perfect place for the, the really scary kind of variant because you've got a lot of infections. So there's a lot of opportunity for mutation and you've got the beginning of the vaccine rollout. So there's now immunity and probably sort of natural immunity as well from the, from the first wave. So there, there's that sort of, you've got the opportunity for mutation and you've got that natural selection process that would drive you towards something that can get out from underneath the variant. So looking at the, the Indian variant, B1617, and specifically the mutation on it, L452R. Now, people have been warning about this for um, just under a month. It was March 25th, I think, when the Indian government acknowledged it. We've had experts saying again and again and again, why isn't it on the red list? And instead, what the government did in early April was it fucking inexplicably put Pakistan and Bangladesh on the red list, but not India. And so it's, we've gone back to that period where the right thing to do was obvious for four weeks before it was done. And in this case, what that involved was waiting until Monday for, Matt, for Boris Johnson's cancellous trip and for Matt Hancock to put it on the red list, something that should have been done some time ago. And we just have to hope now that not enough got in and that that which did get in has been stopped before it can spread across the country. I should, I should add to that, by the way, just to say that we don't know that that variant can get out from underneath uh, the vaccine. We don't have the data yet, but there are suspicions that it might be able to. And the conditions in which it merged have increased those suspicions. One of the things I often hear from colleagues is that it really is impossible to know what is really going on in many countries in the world because the stats just aren't reliable. And when you're thinking about mm-hmm. about the virus in this quite nationalistic way, which inevitably we all do and make comparisons, you can't actually make those comparisons. It's not it's not possible. So Alex Andreu, he's an actor, writer, singer, and long, 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 long suffering Tottenham fan. I know enough about football to know that they call it Spurs, do they not, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I got a laugh out of you in there. Hello, Alex. Hi, Rose. 
On Tuesday, the white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of the murder of George Floyd, the man whose death, of course, energised the Black Lives Matter protests. The reaction of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris was something of a contrast to the way our government has behaved in trying to minimise racism. Where does the Black Lives Matter movement go now? Because Floyd is far from the only black man to have been killed by police in the US. Where does it go in the US? It moves from the street to the office, basically. It seems to me that Biden and Harris's doors are more open right now to the concerns of minorities than any White House at any point in the past. And this opportunity may not last forever. So I think the movement needs to identify leaders and it needs to become a player in shaping policy. You know, it it has to translate the fairness and equality it seeks into a legislative program. It needs to move beyond what it wants and to how it gets it. It's time, basically, for the marginalized in the States to take their seat at the table. It's not an easy transition, but it is what is needed. What do you think the focus of the British BLM movement will be now? I mean, we found out this week, for example, that young black people have disproportionately lost their jobs during the pandemic in Britain. Yeah, sadly, the the UK seems to be on the opposite end of that spectrum right now. The door to number 10 seems more closed than at any point in decades. The rhetoric is that institutional racism only exists in sort of Pinko's feverish imaginations like me. The, the senior advisor on such issues resigned from Downing Street exhausted. Saida Wasi, former chair of the party, keeps pointing to incidents of flagrant Islamophobia and being shushed. The LGBT advisory board has been disbanded after three resignations. I mean, the, the policy on conversion announced this week is that it's not on unless you're a church, which is like saying barking is prohibited except for dogs. Moderate voices are being silenced everywhere and every issue is weaponized and enlisted in the government's culture war. So what the BLM movement needs to do in the UK is work with all its might to ensure a change of government. It's as simple and as hard as that, I'm afraid. Our guest this week is political editor at the Daily Mirror. She's been covering Westminster politics for over a decade at the Evening Standard and The Guardian too. Pippa Krura, welcome to Oh God, What Now? Thanks for having me. Mirror readers tend to be old Labour. Some of them will have gone over to Boris Johnson, perhaps, the ones who are most likely to say that the government's doing its best in very, very difficult circumstances. Do you think their patience with Johnson is fraying yet? I think still the vast majority of our readers tend to be on the left of the political divide. And even the sort of more traditional newspaper readers, the ones you refer to, we also have a, we have a slightly different dynamic in our online readership, which is younger, more metropolitan, more socially liberal, who I think probably are less likely to be attracted by Boris Johnson. But yes, you're right. Lots of our newspaper readers are in those sort of red wall areas that Labour um, for many years took for granted and which Boris Johnson started chipping away at at the last election. And inevitably, some of them will have decided on this occasion to have given him their vote. I think a lot of that certainly... The feedback we've got was because of Brexit, because there were lots of Labour Brexit supporters who ultimately just wanted to see it delivered and felt that it was undemocratic for the referendum not to be delivered on and will have given them the vote um, on that basis. Others, some of the sort of more more socially hard line language and policies that 
Boris Johnson came up with at the election was attractive to them. And they probably felt that actually if he was prepared, this slightly more traditional aspect, if, they, if, they, if he was prepared to sort of, you know, talk up uh, patriotism, uh, the Queen, uh, the armed forces, security, all the things they felt Jeremy Corbyn, the ex-Labour leader, wasn't doing, that they might give him in their vote. Now, I think the issue with Boris Johnson is that he was once upon a time, and you might struggle to remember it now, but quite a quite a unifying figure, really. I mean, for a Tory to win in London, <laughs> Meryl not once, but but twice, was an astonishing feat. And he did that by being Boris Johnson the man first and Boris Johnson the Tory candidate second. It seems so long ago, because he's now so divisive, a lot of that was because of Brexit, obviously, but also because of the, sort of the populist approach he took during the Tory leadership contest, and then how he ran the 29 general election. Um, and that's before we even get to his handling of coronavirus. But there are people who, like the readers that you mention, who may have, for the first time in a generation, decided that they would break with their possibly their family and their cultural tradition, community tradition, and and given uh, the Tories their vote, and are wanting to see whether on all those things Boris Johnson delivers. And crucially, the promises on levelling up are um, at the heart of that. And unless people see really fundamental change in their communities. I think that they might think again about whether they back the the Tories next time round. That's before you get us into, as I say, all the sort of the handling of coronavirus and the Tory cronyism and so on that we're now sort of embroiled in. This week, government corruption and more government corruption. Will Dyson ever make a vacuum cleaner big enough to clear it up? (laughs) We'll also be talking to Pippa about the state of the government's media ops and we'll be looking at football's close call with the aborted European Super League. Could Boris Johnson really have fixed it like he promised? And should he have been getting involved in the first place? Before we start, don't forget two dates for your diary. Our next live Zoom is on Friday the 7th of May. It's an election results special. It's free and it's exclusive to Patreon backers. Ian and Alex will be on the panel. More to be announced soon. Patreon backers have their invitations already. Everyone else can sign up by searching Patreon Oh God What Now podcast. And our long-delayed live show at the Leicester Square Theatre is now set for Tuesday, 10th of August. Who needs Glastonbury? I know I can't wait to be back there. <laughs> now that the date is set, we've released some more tickets. Find them at leicestersquaretheatre.com. That dull-sounding word procurement is turning out to be a recurring irritation for the government. In the rush to buy things like PPE and ventilators, they turned to old friends and acquaintances. And if the friends wanted a better deal, it seems they got it. This week, it emerged that Boris Johnson told James Dyson he'd fix a tax issue that would have made the company liable for more tax. Johnson reportedly said, I am First Lord of the Treasury and you can take it that we are backing you to do what you need. (laughs) Not a good look, really, asking for a tax break when it's taxpayers paying your bills, but never mind. Ian, what does this tell us about the government? I'm going to first of all say that I've already sent two WhatsApp messages today that started with, I am First Lord of the Treasury. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's the sort of chumocracy thing, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, you can't... The most telling way to look at it is, you know, how does he respond to Dyson? versus how does he respond to the other people that have been trying to get his ear? So, you know, late last year, when you see car manufacturers, when you see sort of fisheries, agriculture, when you look at Northern Ireland businesses, they were all trying to fucking talk to him. You know, over and over, you've had, you had 
years, really, of them saying, we've got real concerns here. We've got real concerns about the shit that you've done, and it's going to fuck us. And that is exactly what took place as soon as the Brexit deal sort of came into force and we left the EU. So on that basis, you think, right, so that's how he talks to people in that group. How does he talk to people in the other group, like Dyson, Brexit supporters, very chummy, where you get personal text messages? And that sounds like a kind of, almost like a kind of whataboutery for me to bring it up. But the thing is, those guys were in those talks for those same ventilators at the time. You know, when you look at car, the car industry in aerospace, they were in those talks for those ventilators. In fact, the ventilators that they, that they, they offered turned out to be much more successful than anything Dyson was offering. But they weren't getting the attention because that wasn't the way that democracy operated. That wasn't useful at that point. So, no, I mean, I think it tells you a vast amount about how the, the government operates and the way that it operates towards its friends and those that it couldn't give a shit about. Tony Blair was reluctant to condemn the government in his Today interview this morning uh, on Wednesday. He said he was glad he hadn't had a mobile phone when he was PM. Does the desperate situation we were in last year, does it in any way excuse this kind of cronyism? Well, that'll definitely be used, right? I mean, that obviously is what's being used. Ministers are saying it all the time. And there's even some people online who are suggesting maybe this was sort of leaked on purpose because it isn't a good out. That seems a step, a bit, a bit of a step further than I'd be prepared to take on that one. Um, However, it's not like this is just the way he acts when he's talking about, you know, procurement during the pandemic. Like you look at the stuff that's been in the mail over the last few days on the attempted sort of buy of Newcastle United uh, by the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia. This guy who is, you know, who was involved in organizing a murder of a journalist. And he said when he's texting, it's the same thing. You know, he texts, he makes threats to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson quickly goes in trying to get Lord Leicester to arrange things for a buyout. The same kind of language responding brilliant when he started, they were set up. I mean, the government can't hand out that contract. All they could do was try to speed things up, clearly make it clear that they were rather that it would go to, to Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, on that basis, you know, it's not like this is just the way he acted in the emergency of a pandemic. This is demonstrably the way he acts when he thinks it's in his interest to do so. And he will do it with some of, you know, the most barbarous people in the world, just as he will with, with someone who happens to make shit vacuum cleaners. Pippa, Rishi Sunak has used the whatever it takes line a lot as he's been forced to do things like extend furlough and prop up businesses. Does it resonate with the public? Well, I think it must. And certainly that's what the government are hoping for at the moment when it comes to the current Dyson row. Um, I guess the question is, you know, do the public think, as the Prime Minister was suggesting on at PMQs on Wednesday, that any sort of special favours that might be done were worth it? because of the pandemic you know it's a case of whatever it takes to make sure that there was enough ventilators in the UK and aside on that I thought it was quite striking that the Prime Minister was criticising Keir Starmer for his questions at PMQs and then um, and suggesting that he'd welcomed the, the challenge at the time no mention of course of the fact that he dubbed the challenge Operation Last Gasp which was uh, rather inappropriate um, yeah. but mm. um, so their defence has been that the, that the public basically think that it's worth it and that they would go to any lengths to even if it's going quite close to the line to get the equipment that the country obviously needed at that time the the contrasting point of view of course is that many people think that the prime minister's basically hiding behind that pandemic to try and justify some of this this behavior and it's not just with the, the in the case of dyson there's been a whole you know there's been a sort of a litany of examples in recent times where He's kind of battered away criticism from the opposition, suggesting that Keir Starmer is sniping from the sidelines rather than actually playing 
uh, more supportive role, which I think, <laughs> interestingly, criticism on the Labour left is that he's playing too too much of a supportive role sometimes with the government. Mm. But um, but both, you know, sort of, but, but ultimately forgetting that, um, trying try to distract people into thinking that because the pandemic was on and we were in these absolutely unprecedented times, which no one's contesting, that that it, it kind of like justified any action, any behaviour. And, and I think I personally have a huge amount of, I have a huge problem with that when you look at some of the contracts and how they were awarded. Yes, I think everybody felt that they needed to be pushed through quickly to make sure we had PPE and ventilators and all the other things that we needed. Should that have happened so quickly that checks and balances weren't put in place and civil servants were overruled and ended up with you know billions of pounds worth of contracts going to people with Tory links? No, of course not. So I think that you know the public have a a certain amount of acceptance for a certain amount of um, the actions that the government took, but there is a limit. Alex, Johnson has a casual relationship with the truth. <laughs> this kind of graph, though, seems to cut through with the public in a way that, say, lying about the Irish sea border hasn't. Why is that? Well, I mean, different stories have different cut through, and that's because, you know, not everyone pays the same level of attention to the ins and outs of politics. And so the subjects which are easy to summarize in a couple of sentences always have better cut through. Something really complicated like the Irish Sea border, you will always struggle to get, you know, people to look at a, a headline and care about it and read on. But that isn't to say these stories don't matter, you know, that that I hear from uh, friends who are looking into focus groups that uh, sleaze is beginning to come up unprompted in almost all of them last week. Uh, and, and the Tories, I think, will be really, really terrified of that because once the idea is lodged into the public's head that these people are out for themselves and they're shysters, it's incredibly difficult to shift because then every cock-up is interpreted through that malignant prism and everything seems seems to confirm it. But the other point is that, I, I, I mean, I know it feels like 2020 lasted a decade, but we are essentially still in the honeymoon period of a prime minister who isn't even a third of the way through his term and won a huge majority, which means that a lot of floating voters will still be reluctant to admit that, yeah, I really fucked up with my vote. But often that change is not a curve, you know, it's a tipping point, a sort of build-up that reaches critical mass and then the seesaw simply reverses position with a thud. It feels like the law to prevent this kind of cronyism is there. I mean, you're supposed to have a civil servant in the room when discussing government procurement, for example, Mm. but it's ignored. So do we need new laws or is this about enforcement? And on that, of course, to say that, Johnson may claim now that he did whatever was necessary at the time, but the fact that there was a crisis in March did not prevent him from going to a civil servant in May and saying, take this phone and log all those messages and calls so that they're on public record that this conversation happened. We need a new system of compliance. The rules are there, but the government is allowed to ignore them. The person responsible for assessing breaches of the ministerial code says a minister bullied her employee and instead of her going he goes because the pm just disagreed and he still hasn't been replaced 
I recently spoke to a number of journalists working on these corruption stories for a daily that's coming out later this week. Every single one complained about freedom of information requests taking months to be answered and often being ignored. Maybe Pippa, Pippa can confirm that. Judicial review is under assault. The ministerial code has come to mean nothing. And, and that's the problem, that the system relies on everyone behaving in a decent way. And when they get caught, to say, I put my hands up. And this lot just aren't doing that. Pippa, is that your experience with FOIs, that they don't get answered? Yeah, I mean, some do eventually, and it's not very helpful. But it does feel that while governments have always been sort of slightly dragging their feet on providing information that they're supposed to, this one's been particularly bad. And, you know, I mean, there's sort of a series of areas where it feels that they, they're not possibly being as transparent as they might be. I mean, another recent example we've had in the lobby is phone calls um, to, to other leaders. I mean, somebody mentioned MBS earlier, but more sort of recently than that, there was a, a series of calls to European leaders during the, if you remember, the row over, over, um, over vaccines um, and uh, export bans. Uh, and we we asked about it, about whether they've been called. It wasn't even a case of them not volunteering. We were told that there hadn't been any to report. And then, you know, there was a, a leak and, and somebody reported that, in fact, there had been, I think it was three or four with European leaders, which we hadn't been told about. <laughs> and, we, and number 10 said, well, these are private calls. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but if you're acting as prime minister of a country on official business, there was no way that's a private call. I mean, maybe if you're calling up Angela Merkel to wish her a happy birthday, you can get away with it. But not if you're dealing with something which is potentially so key and an issue of such public interest. And there's been a few things like that, you know, sort of the feeling there's a lack of impunity. I mean, you mentioned Pretty Patel there, but but there's been a few cases of journalists being attacked or, or criticised by by ministers. Uh, most recently, Jacob Rees-Mogg using privilege of the parliamentary chamber to attack a Huffington HuffPo journalist and, and getting his facts wrong. And number 10, absolutely refusing to row back on it. There's been other examples. It just does feel that they're prepared to act with impunity. That if they feel that they can get away with it, then they will. That this sort of culture of doubling down and never accepting that you're wrong is going to stay. And that comes back to Boris Johnson and his attitude. He hates apologising. He hates admitting he's done anything wrong because he sees it as a sign of political weakness that he thinks his opponents will hold against him forevermore, rather than recognising that actually many people see it as a sign of humility. The only apology we've had from him is over the, the pandemic and the amount of people that have died because he couldn't do anything but, really, but on anything else, you know, you'll struggle to get any sort of note of contrition, remorse or reflection out of him. And, you know, I think that makes him lack a common touch. We're all told that he's sort of, you know, man of people in touch with how people feel. But, you know, in my mind, that's uh, that's a big gap for him. The awful irony, of course, is that he used to be a journalist, albeit, of course, not a reporter. <laughs> Do journalists have the time and support they need to dig up these stories? Because they're complex. I mean, recently, the Good Law Project in particular has been making the running when it comes to uh, procurement stories. Do, do you feel that your colleagues have the time or is it constantly rushing around trying to just cover the main news and not really have time to dig into all the detail of these co uh, contracts? It's very difficult and it's not made any easier by the fact that every organisation has fewer journalists who are expected to do more. 
And some papers, mine included, have an investigations editor and investigations team. But my goodness, don't they have don't they have a lot of options of, of subjects to look into at the moment? But I think, you know, my colleagues do a fantastic job getting stories over the line. For us political reporters, it's of course harder when there is such dramatic daily news. I mean, we Brexit, <laughs> followed by an election, followed by the coronavirus crisis, which is still ongoing, which often suck all the oxygen out of any sort of spare time, capacity, energy you have to look at other issues, uh, which is, I think, is really difficult. And we try very hard not just focus on sort of the big issue of the day, although often that ends up, of course, being a priority. Um, but it's a daily battle that myself and I'm sure other political editors would would agree, um, depending on the sizes of their teams, that um, you know you have to prioritise what story you want looked at. You have to be prepared to say to people, look, you can have a few days to look at something and you might not get a result at the end of it, but we still rather you looked into it. And there has to be almost like a sort of a, a market, a starting point that you have to have a certain amount of information in order to be able to proceed with an investigation because you, ultimately uh, manpower is are, are at a premium and you and you have to, man hours rather, at a premium and you have to, you know, try and get some sort of results. But, you know, everybody works super hard at trying to, in my team, at, at trying to sort of bring in more investigative stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's not always easy. Alex, you used to be a civil servant. Is it easy to tell who inside government is there to enrich themselves? It used to be easier because civil servants were almost exclusively career civil servants who had worked their way up the ranks, and none of them were there to enrich themselves, really. We were, we were the watchful eyes that kept ministers a little more honest. All of us worked on a pay cut compared to the same sort of skill and seniority in the private sector, but we were compensated in employment security and a good pension and the moral peace of mind that comes from serving the public. But at some point in the late 2000s and into the 2010s, all of that went under the guise of austerity. And it began being the practice to bring bring private sector people into senior positions. Many of them are there to enrich themselves by boosting their resume and connections and then going back into the private sector five years later and making a shed load of cash. Will their eyes be as watchful of ministers or former ministers as mine were? I'm not sure. Ian, but Ben Williams in politics.co.uk suggests that Tory MPs may eventually remove Johnson over sleaze. Will the Jennifer Arcuri affair in particular end up hurting him more than he imagines, do you think? No. And I think Tory MPs aren't going to remove Boris Johnson over sleaze. I don't think they're going to remove him over anything. In fact, there's only one thing they're ever going to remove him over, and that would be them thinking he's not going to win the next election. The second that that happens with the Tory leader, then they'll start probably getting rid of you. But uh, it certainly won't be because they suddenly be like, oh my God, these procurement contracts, that's just not on. He's and a philanderer. He's <laughs> a funky. <laughs> we, we never had any idea. How <laughs> no, 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 none of that's going to happen. Now, Sports Desk. Football fans had a near nervous breakdown this week as five top English teams and Spurs announced plans. <laughs> you I just realised what you did there. That's plans to break away and join the exclusive 4 billion euro European Super League, only for it all to crumble to dust. 
Many of the rest of us wondered why it was so serious and whether the government should be getting involved at all. Joining us to deliver some strong headers in the press box is our producer, the desperately relieved Liverpool fan, Andrew Harrison. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Roz. How are you? Very well. It freaks me out out when Andrew pops up on the podcast. (laughs) It's fucking weird. And now he's going to talk about football. Just be thankful we're not in the studio. Yes, Dad is here. Yes. Andrew, was this a victory for fan power? And why does it matter politically? Won't the same big businesses carry on using football as a cash cow? Well, it was a victory for for fan power, I think. It was also a victory for a force that we'd all forgotten about, the force of shame, which you've never really seen operating in the past 10 years. The owners of the the big six, it is a big six, I just put that in to wind up, Alex, had no idea. It shows how isolated they are from from the fans, from their customers, as they would call themselves. The idea that you could do this and it wouldn't blow up seems fanciful, but obviously it, it did blow up in a way that genuinely seemed to take them by surprise. One interesting aspect of it, I think, is that this was the big gun that they could always hold against the the Premier League's, the FA's head, the Premier League. We may break away and, and uh, start a Super League. You must must give us what we want. But of course, now they've tried and it's failed. So that, that, that kind of weapon is off the table. So that kind of changes the future for football. And it means that I think the big teams are you know, their, their power has permanently been damaged here. Why does it matter politically? Well, it matters politically because I think Boris Johnson just dodged a bullet because he overpromised enormously by saying, I can stop this and I will stop this. Um, he's got a big I can fix it jag this week, hasn't he? And the fact that the whole thing collapsed into dust before our very eyes in a 48-hour period saved him from having to actually deliver on the check that he'd written. So um, that, that it's politically important for that one in, in that you know, we, we could have seen the government promising something think that's very much dear to its new constituency and and, and failing to deliver. And to that question, won't the same big businesses continue to use football as a cash cow? Well, well, yes, they they have ever since the dawning of the Premier League. They've uh, treated football as a business and we fans have kind of grunted and grinned and bore it. I think the worm turned a bit this week when you see pictures outside Ellen Road of a guy in a Liverpool shirt burning a Liverpool shirt. It's an incredible, an incredible sight. You see just how angry fans have become after being taken for granted for the decades. And now finally this thing where, you know, it's such an egregious insult to everything that that football is. So I feel quite good about it. Yes, it was a victory for fan power. And I think that the owners have been permanently cowed to a degree. The owner of Liverpool, John Henry, his his apology video was, it was pretty abject and pretty, um, I think, pretty heartfelt. Of course, you could see the Johnson point a bit differently and think that, you know, the sheer force of our wonderful leader's disapproval was such that the um, clubs had to roll over and give in. But I didn't see any front pages today that said Boris saves football, which you would have, you know, thinking in another time, if this happened in the 1980s, who is old enough like me to remember Maggie Ban's World Cup? (laughs) <laughs> as if she had the power to do it. So nobody has described this as a victory to Johnson. I think what Johnson saw was an was a stampeding mob that was going to go and burn the castle to the ground. And he ran to the front and declared himself its leader. I think that's what we saw this week. Could there have been an upside to the Super League? I mean, this, this feels like sacrilege to even suggest it to a football fan at the moment. But I remember when cricket brought in that 2020 overs game thing and people hated it. 
until they really liked it. Was there anything to be said for the ESL? Yeah, if you're if you're a West Ham fan, because you might win the Premier League. If you're a supporter of the big six, then you have to get used to everybody else saying that you're a glory hunting Johnny come lately um, and having a go at people like Man City. Everybody forgets that Man City were absolutely in the they were in the gutter of football ten years ago. They were they were a basket case, and yes, huge investment from a sovereign wealth fund with a very questionable record has put them where they are. But you can't deny that they play beautiful and amazing football while they're doing it. So, I mean, could there could there have been an upside to the Super League if you are a supporter of other teams when well, you've got rid of those? those those, those teams that, that represent everything you despise about modern football. I mean, I'm sure as a keen follower of football, Ros, you'll have seen the against modern football banners that have been seen in, in grounds for a while now. Um, is there an upside in competition terms? What? You know, playing the same teams three times a year in meaningless leagues where you can't be relegated, where there is no risk? No. I, I mean, it was, it was, simp- it was, would have been, had it happened, the final end point of the commodification, neutering, and uh, rendering meaningless of football. So no, the only upside of it is it absolutely absolutely dragged the the reputations of certain footballing bigwigs and certain footballing egos into the mud. Nigel Farage was quick to rename the project the European Union Super League uh, with a shady shady reference to globalist banks for good measure. JP Morgan was doing the financial backing. And the spectator claimed that the ESL is the sort of thing Remainers wanted, football disconnected from the places of its birth. What's behind all all this talk? Can I be clear that that was one of my main motivating factors for supporting Remain? I just thought this is the best way for us to disconnect football from the places of its birth. Well, it, it's it was like, this is what you see there is the need for when when a person has a completely integrated answer to the way the world works, it's always the fault of the European Union. Then anything will be subsumed into that. It's a culture war thing. When you, if you're obsessed with something, then everything is about that thing you're obsessed with, and that's what nationalists. That's how nationalists work. Nationalists see everything in nationalist terms. It is, of course, total nonsense. I mean, anybody who loves international football doesn't like to go to Rome or Paris or Istanbul or Athens in order to make it a nowhere, to make it a kind of international, globalist, rootless, cosmopolitan, chrome, nothing land where everything looks like Dubai. Of course not. We like it because the world is different. We want to be part of Europe because the world is full of exciting and interesting different places. And we want to take our own stuff there and bring their stuff here. That's why international football has been... In Liverpool, where I was born... um, Everybody considers themselves to be quite an international person because they're always going to away games all over Europe. You know, we don't see ourselves as parochial little Englanders and, you know, who just live in our, our own backyard. So, yeah, I mean, hats off for being able to make the balloon animal that turns this, this raw material into the thing that you wish it was. But it is, of course, total, total nonsense. Alex, before the league collapsed, Boris Johnson said he'd legislate to stop British clubs from entering the league. Isn't this... Socialism. I mean, it goes against every conservative instinct not to interfere with private enterprise, doesn't it? Could he really have delivered on that promise? Is there such a thing as conservative instinct nowadays? I don't know. This crosses over to two areas that really interest me, competition law, which used to be my former profession, and football. So it, it sort of geeked me out. And I started looking at the at the Competition Act and thinking, so what are they going to, are they going to say this is a joint dominance chapter two investigation, notoriously difficult to prove, or that theirs is a sort of cartel that would be caught by chapter one, in which case the remedies are weak. I mean, they can basically find them a bit. Or is it a market investigation which takes, takes years? Or are they just planning to introduce a completely new piece of primary legislation that says, <laughs> don't do that because we don't like it? 
market. In all cases, I could say a big problem straight off, which will be come as an ironic shock to Nigel Farage, geographic effect. You see, until recently, you could prosecute a case like that under the Article 81 uh, European legislation, but it no longer applies. So by what precise mechanism did the did the British government think it could limit what a private firm does outside UK jurisdiction? VAR, probably. <laughs> I've just got images throughout this whole thing of Alex's boyfriend sat there in lockdown. <laughs> the Alex walking in. I get to talk about competition law and football. It's like, yes. oh, my life. God damn it, yes. Well, clearly, Alex, you should be in charge. There's going to be a review into football cl- club management. And I mean, you, you should be in charge of this. But if the government were to try and intervene on football governance in this country, um, where, where should they start? The, the ownership. The ownership is the only place where they can intervene, like Germany does. Allowing something to be entirely privatised, it means the government can and should only intervene in very limited ways without opening the floodgates to mass intervention. The first thing that would happen would be Labour would go, why aren't you intervening in failing rail companies? Why aren't you intervening in steel? You only intervene in the stuff that makes you look popular because you don't care about people's jobs and people's lives. So fans have huge power. We've seen that in the last few days. But in the same way that consumers have power against the big business whose product they consume. But that's it. I've seen a parade of fans on TV saying the fans own the club. Sorry, but actually you don't. We don't. It's, it's It's a simple statement of law. I remember Chelsea fans lording it over everyone when Abramovich was pouring millions into the club. Ditto with Man City. Ditto with Liverpool. Well, did it not occur to us that something was being sold when that money was pouring in. If you want fans to have a real say over what happens, they have to have a stake in the club, which they must buy back. That is the only way a democratic society behaves. But, but what did you, I mean, did you think that Boris Johnson won anything from his intervention, or Keir Starmer for that matter, who, who was sort of saying largely the same sort of things? You know, he's a legitimate football fan, isn't he? He's, he actually uh, is. Yeah, he actually is bona fide. And plays, plays, plays five aside weekly when COVID allows, and uh, actually, you know, he looked quite passionate talking about it, which uh, he doesn't always. So maybe, maybe that's <laughs> a sort of a maybe that maybe that will help him. I mean, so I suppose the one thing that Boris Johnson didn't do was try and unlike some of his predecessors and pretend that he's a football fan, um, and mm-hmm. pretend were quite clear that he. He didn't feel he had to be. But as Andrew said earlier, I think he did a fantastic job sprinting to the top of the queue of all those people calling for the Super League not to happen. And that's probably the only success he's had in this. I suppose he's avoided coming out on the wrong side of the argument, but I don't think he'll necessarily get credit for it because he didn't actually do anything. Where I think it gets interesting is that the Tracy Crouch review uh, into ownership is still going ahead. And uh, Oliver Zayden said on Wednesday morning after the collapse of the clubs that uh, the the league that, um, that they're not going to let up now. Now, let's see whether this happens. Obviously, it was a 2019 Tory manifesto pledge, but it's been something that the Tories have been talking about since 2010 that hasn't happened yet. But Tracy Crouch is a remarkably consensual figure, really. Uh, She's a Tory MP who manages to respect across the benches. And she does, of course, have football experience herself um, within the football industry. So um, she's probably quite a good person to look into this. Uh, Obviously, it's much more complicated when you get into the nitty gritty of how the fans 
end up having a stake. Do you follow the German 50% plus one share system? That then, as Alex says, raises all sorts of issues about you know how you, how you how they buy back control but you know it's all part of this long bigger tension isn't it between between business and football and you know for, as a footballing fan ultimately people get a high from the unpredictability of it and the sort of you know the last minute goal and the and the shifts in fortunes as clubs go up and down the table is the absolute antithesis of what business wants out of their things which is predictability <laughs> and ability to plan so i don't think this tension's going away anytime soon I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with the fans stuff um, I think Boris Johnson hasn't come out of it terribly but he's not going to receive any remarkable plaudits for it either and uh, you know I still think that if you put him on a football pitch he's, he's, he's more likely to rugby tackle his opponent than uh, than sliding tackle so uh, mm. you know let's see uh, <laughs> let's see what happens in the, in the next in the next few weeks with this review Last year, there was much excitement among journalists at the news that Allegra Stratton would be hosting daily US-style press briefings in a swish new room flanked by Union Jacks. They spent £2.6 million on the room and £125,000 on Stratton, but after her debut was postponed, again and then again, it's been announced that she won't be hosting them after all. Apparently, we the public have enjoyed hearing from Johnson, Hancock and the rest, and we don't want to substitute. Pippa, I suspected Stratton was hired initially because Johnson was floundering in front of the press and, like Trump, he realised someone else could do better. Has he actually got any better at press conferences since? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by better. From his point of view, not answer, not answering the question, then probably yes, he's got he's got better. But from the rest of the world's point of view, the journalists asking the questions and the public looking for the answers, then definitely not. I mean, I have to say, it wasn't a huge surprise when they scrapped these briefings, which hadn't actually ever started. I think right from the off, we'd all anticipated this moment. I think it was a, a misjudgment by Number Ten initially into thinking that this would enable them to control the agenda more, to kind of bypass the media and go straight to the public, having seen how receptive people were to tuning in at five o'clock in the afternoon to the daily COVID briefings in the, in the first lockdown. They thought, oh, well, we'll have a bit of this and this would be great. We could beam ourselves into people's living rooms to talk about all sorts of other issues. Of course, it doesn't quite work like that. And um, anybody who had the pleasure of listening to a lobby briefing would very quickly realise that actually they show everything warts and all. So, you know, just as the government might get its moment, or like a Stratton, it would have been get her moment to sort of big up what the government has done in a particular area or a bit of investment or whatever. So too, it would show all the awkward bits, the questions that they weren't able to answer, the sort of slightly, how, how shall I put it, the slightly sort of, you know, being pushing the truth as far as they can in some of the answers, the evasions, the, the sort of constantly answering different questions than those to which they've been asked. And and the public would probably think that those moments weren't quite so impressive and that um, there, were, there were sort of proper questions there for for the government when it came to, to sort of transparency and openness that, that, that weren't being addressed. So I think the realisation that actually um, it wasn't necessarily the, the great coup that they thought it might be and that these briefings are can, can go badly wrong as often as they go right from a government's perspective um, finally convinced them that actually they probably weren't that good an idea in the first place. Stratton might be unelected, but at least she would have answered questions or avoided questions about the government. Will we get enough scrutiny now, either in terms of quantity or quality? I think this is a really important question. And certainly going forward, it's one that I and others will be 
pushing number 10 on how often are we going to get regular press conferences i mean it's not so long ago that we were that we were told three times a week we get a minister up in up in front of the podium answering questions from the press the last few weeks we've had so the last couple of months we've we sort of struggled to have one or even two press conferences and of course only one way that you can hold the government to account parliament has hit its job to do both in committee sessions and and in the chamber but given how hard it has proven to be for media institutions to get access to the prime minister to ask direct questions, um, they're very keen on using their own photographer. They're very keen on taking a very small pool with him on visits. Part of that is a necessity because of COVID, of course, but it doesn't feel like we get huge amounts of access to him. So, you know, if we get weekly questions um, televised from number 10 with the prime minister, then, you know, I think I think journalists would would think that was a good starting point. But my fear, of course, is that is that they'll only they'll only sort of put somebody up unless they've got something that they want to announce. And while they can't control the questions, they can control who asks them, whether they get any follow ups and how long the whole thing's televised for. So, mm. you know, the, the battle continues, as it were, uh, as, as far as the as far as the lobby concerns is concerned and getting access. We're definitely not there yet. And while. Allegra Stratton obviously uh, is moving on to other things. We never got the chance to see her on the podium. You've got to hope that her departure doesn't mean that we're not going to get anybody up there at all. Ian, were you looking forward to being in the briefing room? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) You did not relish the chance to interrogate Allegra Stratton? (laughs) No, not really. I mean, I didn't believe for a second that any of this stuff would would happen. I, I know it's an easy thing to say afterwards, but it was always just that sort of... Like, if, you, if you've seen the, the way that it works for the lobby, you just sort of think, why would you want to fucking put that shit on TV? Like, I mean, it, you, you sort of get it from a, from a journalist's point of view. You, you kind of would, because I think there's a lot of condemnation. I mean, people can speak to this, and she's far more senior and sort of knowledgeable on this stuff than I am. But like, there's an awful lot of condemnation of the lobby and the way that it operates, and lots of it is sort of legitimate. But there's also really some very, very good questioning in that format. And part of the reason is something that was just referenced, the, the capacity for follow-up questions. And just, you know, we see in the press conferences that we have over COVID, if there's no follow up question, it doesn't, you can't really do any effective scrutiny at all. Because you can, you can ask, no matter how precise your thing is, as long as someone warbles away for a while, and you don't get to respond to it, it doesn't really do you any, any good. You know, the, the stuff with the lobby was you, you can keep on asking those follow up questions. And the more you, the, there's a capacity for follow up questions, the more it becomes obvious just how misleading and disingenuous someone is being so given that that's the sort of the the dynamic that often operates there you just think well surely you wouldn't want this on tv like unless you guys are looking at what happens in this room with a very very different set of eyes to everyone else and thinks that this is something you want more people to see that would be very very surprising to me so it just seems so unlikely and if they weren't going to do it then they would surely surely stitch up the rules along covid press conference sort of ways to make it you know as difficult as possible to, to allow people to ask questions they need Pippa, Stratton will be doing COP26, which is the big environmental summit that Britain is hosting this autumn. Is that a come down? It feels like a come down. Is she going to stick around? Well, it's not the job she was employed to do in 125 grand a year. So, I mean, the governments are very keen to talk about the green agenda as though it's sort of, you know, something that's been committed for years and years and years. Bottom line is that while there are individuals in government who understand the importance of tackling climate change, it's not a priority for them. And uh, what's, I think, as interesting for the Prime Minister at the moment is the fact that Britain is hosting this summit and uh, it's an opportunity to have lots of world leaders, we still don't know whether they're going to attend in person, obviously depends on COVID, um, but to have lots of world leaders here in Glasgow and to um, be able to sort of play the host and, and sort of, you know, 
big up the global Britain. I, I, if I was her, I'd be feeling a bit miffed. I mean, there are suggestions that relations inside number 10 weren't quite what they should have been. And that may have contributed to to the, sort of the shift in roles. You know, I mean, it's a short term thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a great project to be involved in, not necessarily the one she wanted to originally. So maybe she'll stick with it and then and then leave. Um, I mean, I haven't had a conversation with her about it. But um, her sort of the public statement, which was issued saying that she was really looking forward to it. I think probably, you know, there's quite a lot of reading to be done between the lines there. Labour has its own PR problems as well. Keir Starmer was accosted by an anti-vax pub landlord on Monday. How do you reckon he handled that? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because it sort of got bigged up all over the media as being this um, potentially disastrous moment. Was it his Gordon Brown, Julian Duffy, bigot lady moment? Actually, I thought he handled it. I thought he handled it pretty well when you consider that the guy who accosted him was... In the very much in the minority in this country, I think the vast majority of people have been following the rules, can understand the necessity for them, despite all the frustrations. And the sort of anti-lockdown fanatics are really very few in number. And you know, I think given that he was sort of accosted by this guy who was quite aggressive and abusive, and whose 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 landlords, pub landlords, later suggested was only expressing his own view and it's nothing to do with MGov. I thought Hans was okay. He sat there quietly, he listened, and then he said he wasn't going to take any questions from him because his wife worked in the NHS. So I'd suggest that Keir Starmer has seen more of what has been going on in the NHS over the last 18 months than, than the landlord of the pub in Bath. So I don't think it's going to do him any harm, really. Alex, how do you rate the Labour media operation right now? I have to say the pub landlord thing sent me temporarily into a proper all-caps Brian Blessed rage, Um, like, just sack everyone. And then I saw Ian's tweet, and I deleted my tweets because I thought, actually, that's just it's just not helpful. Um, I never knew I had so much power. I would (laughs) every day. (laughs) What did Ian say? He he just said, you know, ev- everyone jumps on Starmer a little too easily. It was something like that. Yeah. But look, it luckily turned out okay for Starmer. I think he handled it incredibly well. But but that was more by luck than judgment, in my view. Having had an argument with a guy already, the, I think the team should have shielded him from it and moved on rather than went into the pub. And it is a little bit reminiscent of the Jesus House fiasco. It just doesn't feel like the campaign reconnaissance is as tight and professional as it could be at the moment. I don't want to see loads of stuff left to chance in a pre-election campaign. The One of the big advantages of, of sort of voting for Starmer as leader was meant to be that he would professionalize the operation. And I haven't seen that as much as I expected to see that. So, okay, it's a baby election. You know, it's important, but it's not make or break. If they take the lessons forward and improve their um, sort of recce for future walkabouts, great. If they don't, it indicates to me that that they don't really know what they're doing, and that worries me. Ian, you're inclined to cut Keir Starmer some slack, aren't you? 
Yeah, I am. I am. I mean, I can't, you know, I guess this is the thing that gets me. I mean, I, I take all of those points on board on, on sort of, you know, the, the more minutiae of, you know, recce's on, on stuff. That, that's, that's all valid. I think my, my thing comes down to this is, you know, and I don't want to just go over the shit that we've, all, you know, has been endlessly talked about, but it is worth still remembering it, which is that the labor situation is it, they have to bring together two groups that it's very hard to keep together, you know, in really, really crude kind of almost fictitious terms. But fundamentally, it is true. As you know, young metropolitan sort of socially liberal voters with former industrial heartlands, much more socially conservative voters. And pretty much anything you fucking say on any subject will alienate one of those groups while encouraging the other. And you really do have to keep them both. And yet, so if you then become so banal and vanilla that you just say shit that wouldn't upset either of them, everyone just looks at you like you're kind of a weird, sketchy faker, you know, in the kind of Ed Miliband immigration mug thing. And that's really fucking hard. You know, that problem is really very, very difficult. It's not just in this country that the, the liberal left has that problem. You know, it's across the West. It's a real fucking difficult issue. And I suppose what I see so much online and the reason that I find myself just feeling instinctively sort of a bit defensive towards him is I just think, what is your idea? Like, I just see so many people giving him shit going, oh, it's so bad. This, It's just like, well, okay, so what is it? What the fuck is it that you think we should be saying to try and bridge that divide? He's come up with competence, anti-corruption, patriotism, and inequality. And, you know, it's just like, like, I agree. It's not the most fucking inspiring shit I've ever seen in my life. I really hope that it improves. But ultimately, I do understand why those are the kind of issues that they think don't rock the boat with either of those groups. It's just really, really fucking hard, I guess is my thing. And it's really, really fucking easy to just sort of instinctively slap them off. I agree with all of that entirely. But having chosen what your message will be, you have to work really hard not to crowd it out of the headlines by your own mismanagement of, you know, the actual PR opportunity. That's oh, yeah. No, I completely, yeah, of course. I completely, I completely agree with that. Although I don't know how much they could have, there will always be a certain, a certain level of chaos, you know, in sort sure. of election campaigns. And, you know, someone will be there on the street. You know, Boris Johnson's had all sorts of people shout at him. And, and that. so you can only control it to a certain extent. I'm not, I'm not sure that you could have controlled this one to get rid of it. Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, but yeah, of course. I mean, you need a professional campaigning outfit, of course, of course. Pippa, you're still still on the media. You mentioned earlier that lots of newspaper groups have had cutbacks during the pandemic, and the Mirror's publisher, Reach, was one of the groups that that did cut wages, although it's since restored them to pre-pandemic levels. COVID accelerated a trend that was already underway to reduce staffing in newspaper offices and dedicated online journalism, and the Huffington Post in the UK was basically shut up shop a few weeks ago. Where do you see the industry heading now? Very hard, isn't it? I mean, I think when you're in the middle of redundancies and you see organisations which have been doing amazing stuff like HuffPo here fold, um, they're done in news operation, then you you could get quite depressed about it. However, I'm one of life's optimists and I genuinely think that there's always going to be a need for journalism and that it's always uh, that is such a central tenet of democracy that will always happen. I think the question arises as to what platform it's delivered on. And obviously, increasingly over time, we're seeing the shift to digital and that will continue. But there is there is definitely something that's become clear to me in the last few years is that despite that digital and sort of different models of, of delivering news that different organisations have different approaches they've taken, there is a demand, a love for newspapers um, beyond being sort of 
heritage products, if you like. Um, and I, I think there's, they have to be sort of done in a different way. It's about what the newspaper can, can, can provide that, that a digital, digital operation might not be able to do. And it's all the sort of the other the other bits, the other elements, you know, you've got your podcasts and, and um, there's obviously broadcast as well. So I don't feel depressed about the future of, of journalism, I have to say. I think it's, I think that's thriving. I think that the industry is going undergoing fundamental changes, but I do think it will emerge stronger, but will look quite different um, in 10 years time. We noticed that you've been consistently ahead of the curve on the pandemic. You were the first to ask the government about the Cheltenham Festival and the care home scandal. And you also asked Boris Johnson what precautions he was taking to ensure he didn't get coronavirus two weeks before he actually caught it. What was it like to cover politics in those strange weeks when everyone in government seemed to be dropping from COVID? It was very bizarre. I mean, I got COVID myself a few weeks after and, um, you know, that gave me some time to reflect on it all. But I think and as anybody that's that's been in the middle of any big story and not just in politics, just anywhere, will say when you're in the middle of it, you don't necessarily realise you are. I mean, clearly on a logical intellectual level, we knew that we were dealing with something that had never been that had never been experienced in, in this country before, especially not in, you know, in our lifetimes. From that point of view, the scale of the story was clear. But this is the everyday, how do you make this work? What questions do you ask? What's going to be important? Are we doing enough? That sort of stuff was much more sort of intuitive, really, and organic. And I remember having a conversation with my editor about a front page that we ran a couple of weeks in. Um, so before the government had announced the full lockdown, just days before, I think, the government had announced the full lockdown, and the headline that we settled on was, um, is this enough? And at that time, pretty much everyone, public, you know, most, most of the public, lots of journalists, were kind of giving the government and the scientists the benefit of the doubt that they knew what they were doing, mainly, I think, because very few of us knew enough about pandemics beyond a few notable science correspondents. And it felt like a, a real sort of, we were shifting away from the the sort of the the narrative, the agreed narrative, if you like, that that everybody had to back the government in making these decisions and and sort of gently find our mm. way. Because mm. we were thinking, actually, they're not necessarily doing this right. They're not doing enough. All the evidence, limited though it was, that we've seen from abroad, is that is that you need to act hard and act fast and lock down sooner if you want to get on top of this. And we had this long debate about whether we were going to be the first to sort of break away and to publish that front page. And and you know, in retrospect, I think you would you would say that we were right to do so. But it, it feels, it's an odd feeling, isn't it? But I guess we kind of thought, well, if, if not the mirror, then who? And and then, of course, you know, time, pro- others then followed suit and, and uh, you know, um, because of the circumstances on the ground, not because we'd led the way necessarily. Um, and, and generally, we took on across Fleet Street a much more sort of questioning critical tone, which I think was was right, given what we now know about the government's handling of those early days of the pandemic. Dominic Raab was officially in charge but was the government basically paralysed when Johnson fell ill? It was a very strange period, that few weeks. I mean, we didn't really know initially what was going on. They kind of kept him hidden away in his flat above Downing Street. And we had, we all got sort of, you know, these odd little video clips that he did in which he looked progressively worse. Um, and they told us that he was seeing, you know, he was getting medical advice, but clearly not enough or not the right advice. Or I don't know, he maybe just declined very quickly and you know the number 10 operation continued but I remember sort of sitting there thinking actually at my kitchen table at that one point asking questions about 
funnily enough, um, you know, where Dominic Cummings was and, you know, being told that, that people were working from home. And uh, even though Don Raab was kind of in charge of the sort of the day to day of business, num- thinking who's in charge of number 10. And then it became clear that Lee Kane, who was the PM's director of communications, was effectively for a few days running the country. And it, it became, it, and I we subsequently found out that that's because, gave people answers and people needed answers. People were kind of like, you know, civil servants needed sort of direction as to what to do. And he was the only person that they felt had sort of the PM's blessing to be able to make some of those decisions. Obviously, cabinet government was in place. Dominic Raab was officially in charge of the country. But sort of the day-to-day running of number 10, people now point to Lee and say that it was him over that period. Um, now, an unelected, not necessarily very senior or very experienced junior official, or official rather, um, in charge when the country was undergoing, and the prime minister was sort of, you know, at death's door in hospital, and the country was undergoing, was going, was living through such a sort of you know terrible time, dramatic time, is is frankly really worrying. And you know you've got to hope that one of the lessons learned, and there are many, many, and others which are much more important, of course, um, from all of this, is is you know what happens if we ever face such a crisis again, when our leadership is um, unavailable to act. And yet when big decisions, decisions need to be made, is there some sort of, you know, plan, contingency plan that needs a button to be pressed somewhere and to come into action? Because um, I don't think we knew the half of it at the time as to, as to what was going on inside number 10. And, and certainly knowing what we know now, you know, it goes a long way to explaining some of those really sort of awful um, and often deadly early decisions. We've reached the end of the show and it's been a packed show. So we're going to give But Your Emails a rest for one week. It'll be back next week. Don't worry. Until then, thanks to Ian. Thank you. Alex. My pleasure. And our guest, Pippa Kurar. Thanks for having me. In our extra bit, exclusively for Patreons, we're asking if the widespread pub booking system will kill off the spontaneity of going out. Back us for as little as £2 a month to get full access, as well as getting the episode a day early. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corn Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Oh, and it's a big smiley emoji and thumbs up from me to Lindsay Brown, Jim, Simon Duckworth, Tracy Ballard, and the human catastrophe that is Francis West. Sending the heart and the fireworks emojis to Joanne Chigi, Roger Clark, Richard Walshaw, Jessica Issa, and Jane Harris. And the bottle of champagne and the dancer from me to Alec Matujak, Nathan Clark, Michael Wilson, Justin Meadows, Martin Young. We'll see you next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Alexandreev, Ian Dunt and Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now I confess I have not yet been to the pub or a restaurant. But I have done my bit for the economy by going to a theme park. Shout out to Gulliver's Kingdom in Matlock Bath. <laughs> I've queued outside H&M in Oxford Street, and I've even gone to a library. That was a stressful experience involving a non-functioning QR code, a broken self-checkout machine, book quarantine, and the overall feeling that I'd rather wait until June or whenever <laughs> this is going to be over. However, I know that Ian has been single-handedly keeping London's restaurant scene alive. <laughs> Ian, did you pre-book everything back in January? No, 
No, no, because I'm fucking unbelievably badly organized. And I kind of hate, I hate organization in like an incredibly teenage way. Like, you know, I want the, you know, I want the, like, the mystique. Get out. Know, do Get out. I don't I believe it for a moment. <laughs> yes, who would have thought that I would maintain rebellious teenage dispositions that were actually self-defeating? <laughs> like, it, it just sort of, because I like that, I just want the idea of, like, oh, I could do anything. We could be anywhere tonight. Whereas, in fact, what will happen is we'll just sit and have a couple of pints somewhere and then a fairly average, you know, suburban Italian meal. But... What matters is that it could happen. And I, I actually really dislike this, this need to, to sort of book ahead. So we, we booked like a couple of nice posh meals to celebrate like the end of the lockdown thing. And then lo- earlier this week, it was just like, oh, should we actually just pop down to the curry house and see if we could just sit down there? And we could. And that shit tasted fucking amazing like it was beautiful and i think it was i was trying to work out is it just because this is the best curry house in the world which it is it's stars grill by the way north london is fucking brilliant looks like a shithole tastes amazing um or is it just like it was impromptu you know like it just had that tuesday night oh so we just pop out thing and that is like a a really different thing to eating out as an event, but it was like, it felt like proper luxury or the kind of luxury that you have if you're in Dar's Grill, which is a very specific kind. That was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week.